Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. I'm TJ Daw, and this season my co-host Mario Sikora and I will be exploring the Enneagram through the lens of specific directors whose work demonstrates themes related to the nine Enneagram types and three instinctual biases. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, season two. This is a very special Christmas episode. Uh, so we are stepping outside of our format for this season where we're focusing on directors. And uh, TJ and I and a special guest host today are going to talk about four Christmas movies that we really like and uh, talk about the Enneagram related themes in those movies. So TJ, how you doing? Why don't you say hello to everybody? I'm doing really well. Really happy to be here and really happy to have our special co-host on this episode. You know, last time I was at the international meeting of different people named TJ, I met another one who happened to be into the Enneagram and his name is TJ Ingracia. And he's a brilliant video editor. And if you haven't seen his YouTube series Typecast, which combines clips from movies and TV shows looking at different actors and different scenes that embody the nine types. You should really check that out. It's high-quality stuff. TJ Ingracia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. TJ Ingracia, I'm going to reiterate what TJ Dahl said. I'm, I'm a big fan of your videos, uh, your uh, typecast videos where you use movie clips to show each of the nine Enneagram types. And your most recent one, I have to say, is my favorite, <laughs> looking at the three subtypes of the eight through the movie The Godfather. Not and that you're biased or anything. Not that I'm biased, but hey, you know, it is about eights, right? So, and that's what, you know, I care about. Um, uh, but I, I think you did a really good job with it and really encourage people to to take a look at that. Uh, it's very well done. And also to listen to our episode on Type 8 and The Godfather from last, last season. TJ, you do some other things as well, too. Tell us uh, what else you do. Sure. I'm a freelance video producer based in St. Louis, Missouri. So I do typecast sort of on the side as a passion project, but I do, you know, I pay my mortgage doing video production. I do a podcast with my brother called Agnostish, where we talk about uh, growing up in evangelical Christianity and faith and spiritual journeys and that kind of thing. Yeah, just uh, do, do a lot of video work professionally and personally, and that's what I'm passionate about. Yeah. So anybody who might be looking for your video production services, your website is tjingracia.com, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Spell that for everybody. I N G. R-A-S-S-I-A. Yeah, the kid's got talent, so check him out. Uh, I think he's going places. And now we are going to go to the North Pole, in a sense, right? And uh, talk about Christmas movies and uh, the Enneagram. So um, we're going to focus on four movies today. And I think we've kind of run the gamut from of genres here, right? So we're going to start off talking about It's a Wonderful Life. And then we're going to talk about A Christmas Story. Third movie will be Elf. And the fourth movie will be Die Hard. Now, I usually try to go in chronological order with the movies. We're mixing it up a little bit this time. I wanted to save Die Hard for last because I think we need to have a little debate about whether or not Die Hard really is a Christmas movie or not, okay? Which is an ongoing debate in the world of people who have nothing better to talk about, uh, like us. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll, 
we'll, we'll, we'll save Die Hard for last, okay? Uh, but before we do that, TJ, where, what are we going to, TJ Dahl, what are we going to start with? Yeah, instead of talking about a given Enneagram type or strategy or a given director, because we're watching movies with four different directors, we're going to talk about Christmas itself. What Enneagram energies do we see at play over the Christmas season, at least as it's celebrated in America? And I include Canada in that too, because even though Canada is not the same as the U.S., it's mostly the same. And even though a lot of Canadians <laughs> will give me some passive aggressive shade for saying that, Canadians grow up consuming American media, at least 90% of which, particularly the Christmas stuff. So yeah, Canadian and American Christmas. Different than European Christmas, different than Christmas in other places, but this is the Christmas that I grew up with, that most of us, probably most people listening to this podcast, will think of. So what's going on here? And there's a couple of things I've got in mind. My strategy is type four, strive and feel unique. As a kid, I loved Christmas. And then now as an adult, I can see that that was largely focused on material desire. We'll get to that when we talk about a Christmas story. And I got pretty cynical about Christmas as I reached into adulthood. Something Richard Rohr said is that we are the shiningest example of our type at age 20. And if I think of who and where I was at 20, I really didn't care for Christmas at all. And then when I started getting in romantic relationships, I had a number of them, some of my more serious relationships were with twos who loved Christmas, loved everything about Christmas. And when I eventually learned about the Enneagram, I tried to piece together, okay, why might that be? Well, at Christmas, one of the big rituals, giving gifts. Twos love giving gifts, love showering people with loving attention in that way. And celebrating with family. At least the twos I was with were very family-oriented. And what does the family do together, aside from giving gifts? Eat. A great big meal for all of us to share. So all of these loving two things, as well as sentimental music. You know, so, and so the four in me rejected all of those things. The music was corny and trite, and people only liked it because they had to. And Gift-giving was quite often disappointing. It was a matter of somebody proving how little they actually knew you by giving you something that was related to something you were interested in seven years ago but aren't anymore, some projection of who they think you are that was inevitably a letdown. And Christmas movies were, again, just a dime a dozen and corny. And those relationships were before the era of, of Hallmark movies. So I imagine I would have been even more cynical and grumpy about those <laughs> things at the time. And family. I was pretty alienated from my family. You know, I would show up for Christmas dinner, but I would kind of, it was something to get through. It wasn't an opportunity to really share my soul and have in-depth conversations. So yeah, Christmas had a lot of baggage for me for a lot of years. So this is very interesting because, again, we don't know the true Enneagram type of Christmas. Um, we don't know the true official Enneagram type of Santa Claus or of the baby Jesus. Uh, so, um, you know, we are kind of uh, doing a thought experiment here, right? We are speculating and we're bringing our own perspective, okay? Um, I think with, as we'll see with these movies, you know, we can kind of cherry pick right? Different themes that we like. I mean, I think any one of us can watch the same movie and walk away with it saying, hey, you know, here's the theme, the, the type theme that I saw in this, whereas somebody else might say it differently. And there's no right or wrong answer, right? And the whole goal of this podcast is not to definitively say Santa Claus was a two or, you know, whatever we think Santa Claus might be, but to say, 
you know, here's how the way we live our lives reflects these different strategies and instinctual biases and so forth. For me, it's a much more interesting conversation. So, TJ and Gracia, tell us a little bit about Christmas from your perspective. Well, my strategy is type one. So, growing up, I had a lot of guilt around Christmas. My parents made a pretty uh, let's let's say Christmas morning was extravagant. You know, there was an orgy of gifts under the Christmas tree. And I remember as a kid, you know, sort of being conflicted over, you know, of course, every kid loves to get presents, but also just feeling like, well, man, there's a lot of kids who probably woke up and didn't have any presents and just feeling some guilt over like, this is too much. I, I'm uncomfortable with this. And, you know, of course, now I shower my own kids with presents because, you know, I think that's a pretty magical, you know, Christmas morning, just there's something about it. It it goes beyond, you know, I get the sort of the the cynical American consumerism thing you were talking about, TJ Daw, but um, there is something magical about waking up with presents under the tree on Christmas morning. So that's something I've sort of not exactly struggled with. I just, I, as we were planning for this podcast, I was thinking back to that and, and remembering those those more conflicted mornings on Christmas. Great, thanks. So, so, so it's very interesting. My Christmases today are very different than my Christmases were as a child, right? So my Christmases as a child were perfectly fine. You know, like everybody else, I was excited to wake up in the morning and open the presents and that sort of thing. And we always got, you know, nice you know, a couple of things here. You know, I remember one year getting a stereo and another year getting an Atari, you know, system and all that. Yes, that's how old I am. So, um, but now the Christmases here are over the top, right? I mean, our house is, I say like a classier version of the Griswolds, right? Uh, you know, as far as lights are concerned, they're not really so, but we do do up the lights. We have four boys and they each get you know, a fair amount of stuff, right? Um, you know, my wife's family, Christmas was always a big, 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 big deal, right? And so uh, that has kind of carried on. Uh, so for me, I'm fairly indifferent to holidays, quite frankly, right? I mean, I say, yeah, okay, fine. I don't dislike them. I don't really, you know, get too excited about them. Actually, my favorite holiday is Thanksgiving because, I think it's one of those holidays that's kind of hard to, well, it, for me, it has a really nice meaning to it, right? Of just being grateful for the people around us and who we care about that sort of thing. But, you know, Christmas is great for the kids for me. For me, it's a, it's a holiday about the kids. Now, I think we do have to talk about the, shall we say, gulf between the meaning of Christmas, right? You know, it's about the birth of Jesus and, you know, in a manger and all of these things, right? Versus what it has become in particularly the United States, right? It's not as over the top uh, in most other places that I'm aware of. And now, for me, Christmas is all about excess and excitement, right? I mean, and whereas TJ, you associated a lot with the two, in my mind, it's a very seven-ish holiday, right? It is about gluttony and excitement, right? And it's, you know, I want more stuff. I want to give more stuff because it makes me feel good to give stuff to uh, people. I want to eat a lot, right? I want to wear my, you know, my stretchy fat guy pants, you know, for a couple of days there and eat whatever I want. So I always think of it as a time of indulgence for better or worse, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's the lens I'm bringing 
to thinking about Christmas, right? And even I think it'll come in some of my perceptions of these movies, okay? But really uh, interesting thing to talk about. So, okay, so uh, also I'll say, you know, what, 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 what do we call Santa Claus? Jolly old Saint Nick, right? Jolly is kind of seven-ish thing, right? Yeah, you know, and he eats cookies everywhere he goes, right? So you know, there you go. Right? So I, I just keep seeing gluttony everywhere I look, right? Gluttony and jolliness. So, um, so let's talk about the first movie, okay? So uh, T.J. Daw, I think you're going to start us off with "It's a Wonderful Life." So why don't you go ahead there? And as always, these we're going to do a short summary before we discuss every movie, and these these are full summaries. There will be spoilers. If you somehow yes. <laughs> have not seen A Wonderful Life or do not know how it ends, feel free to skip this or just be ready for it to be spoiled. So It's a Wonderful Life came out in 1946. It was directed and co-written by Frank Capra. And it tells the story of George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, who lives in a small town in upstate New York. It's Christmas Eve and he's on the verge of taking his own life. Pretty unusual framing device for a Christmas movie. A few angels confer and agree to send Clarence, an angel who hasn't earned his wings yet, to intervene. First, Clarence is given the background on George's life, which lets us, the audience, in on the story of who this guy is. So he grew up in a, the son of a small businessman who ran the Bailey Building and Loan, a bank and lending institution, and the one financial institution in the town that isn't owned by the local bigwig Henry L. Potter, played by Lionel Barrymore, who has a beautifully snarly voice throughout. So Potter would like to wipe out the building alone, but is repeatedly frustrated in his attempts to do so. George dreams of doing big things. He doesn't want to stay in this little town. He wants to travel the world, build skyscrapers, airfields, bridges a mile long. You hear him say this a bunch of times in the movie. But circumstances and his sense of responsibility repeatedly prevent him from leaving, and he stays to work and eventually run the family business. Along the way, he falls in love with Mary, played by Donna Reed, who's the classic small-town nice girl. They move into a decrepit house, they renovate it, they have four children. And then on Christmas Eve, George's eccentric Uncle Billy misplaces a significant amount of the building alone's funds on his way to deposit it in the bank, which threatens to bankrupt the business and send Uncle Billy to jail, although George decides to take the bullet for him and go to jail in his stead if it comes to it. George comes home distraught, vents his frustrations on his family, and then storms off into the night. He winds up on a bridge looking at the rushing water, getting ready to jump in, when splash, Clarence the Angel jumps in first, and George leaps in to save him and brings him out. And while they're warming up, Clarence tells him who he is, that he's an angel. George doesn't believe him, of course. And then as they talk, George states that he wishes he'd never been born. Clarence grants him the chance to see what his hometown would be like if he'd never existed. George walks through the town, seeing that the town is renamed Pottersville that Potter owns everything, and it's now a den of dance halls and sleazy bars and general iniquity. And everybody he knew from his life is worse off in one way or another. And he comes to realize that he really has had a wonderful life, and he runs back to the bridge, praying, begging God to have his old life back, which he gets. And then he runs to town, elated, yelling well wishes at every, everyone and anyone. He comes home, there's warrant officers waiting to arrest him, which he gladly accepts. His wife, Mary, comes in, bringing dozens of people with her who pooled their money as soon as they'd heard he needed help. And it's more than enough to, to compensate for the money that was lost. And the police rip up the warrant for him. And everybody sings loving Christmas carols. Clarence the Angel gets his wings and leaves a message for George that no man is poor as long as he has friends. So th thanks, TJ. And so what's interesting there is at the end, they don't sing a Christmas carol. They sing Old Lang Syne, right? Right. which is associated with New Year's Eve. And something that struck me about this movie is and as my wife and i were watching it the other night she said this isn't really a christmas movie 
right? Because it's not about Christmas. It takes place at Christmas time, but it's really, you know, not so much Christmas music and it, a movie. And, and it turns out the reason it became so associated with Christmas is because the copyright on the movie ran out. And so TV stations realized that they could play it without having to pay royalties. And so they, it became the tradition of playing it at Christmas time. And it became viewed as a Christmas movie, even though it really doesn't talk too much, if at all, about Christmas. Okay. And uh, was a bomb when it came out. Absolutely. Yes. And it almost ended Frank Capra's career, who had, you know, been very successful up to that point. And so it's interesting the life it has taken on after an initial failure. TJ and Gracia, tell us about Enneagram-related themes that you saw in It's a Oh, boy, you picked me to start. Okay. Um, so I'm testing uh, you here. So go yeah, ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about, you know, you thought that and in Christmas has a very seven-ish sort of feel. Uh, I got sort of a, a seven-ish vibe from George Bailey. You know, he wants to get out. He wants to see the world. Uh, at one point, he's talking to his father at the table, and he says, "I couldn't face the rest of my life cooped up in a shabby little office." You know, he's he's he needs to get out, <laughs> and he's continually thwarted from getting out. You know, throughout the movie, he's he's almost there. He's getting ready. He's going to board the train, and then you know, disaster strikes. Potter yes. strikes, yes. and he and he has to stay. And he does the you know the right thing. He stays and and helps people helps the town, but it seemed, you know, the seven vibes seem pretty clear to me. Yeah. So, so I agree. And, uh, you, you know, for me, I, so Jimmy Stewart is a, is a fascinating actor. I mean, he's one of the greats and watching this, I was reminded of just how good he really is. Right. And I think he can play multiple characters. He does nine very well too. I always think of Harvey, one of my all time favorite <laughs> movies about the giant invisible rabbit. Um, I think he's fantastic. And, but I also got kind of a seven ish vibe from him. And it was that idea of this desire to go out and see the world. And you know, this, uh, because when they asked him what he wanted to do, or when his father asked him what he wanted to do, he said, well, I, you know, I, I want to go out. I want to build big buildings. I want to uh, create cities. You know, he had these aspirations. And like he, you said, the, the idea of having to stay here for the rest of my life is almost more than I can bear. So, but that was his fate indeed. Something that we see in sevens that is usually not in the literature is that this feeling of disappointment in life. And this is the theme of It's a Wonderful Life, right? He has to be told that, no, it wasn't that bad. One of the things that plagues the seven is building up this excitement about the possibilities of life or how good this meal is going to taste once I'm finished cooking it or once it arrives and then tasting it and saying, yeah, it's okay. Right? I, I should have gotten this or I should have done that. So this for me is the big theme right, of this disappointment of things. Now, in our trainings, we talk about the accelerator of the seven being savoring, learning to sit with what is and appreciate it rather than thinking about what could have been uh, very difficult. Also, the, at point seven, a core thing is around uh, joy and the stunting of joy, uh, joy being something that arises in us naturally, independent of external stimulation. 
Okay. So I don't need that, you know, uh, Red Rider BB gun in order to be happy, not to jump ahead to our next movie, but I don't need that thing. I just, you know, life is good and I'm happy and everything's going to be okay. And so I, I can, I can, um, you know, live on here. So trying to recapture that essential joy is a big part of the work of the seven. Okay. Now, again, I think there are multiple themes that we can find here. Okay. So uh, the definitive answer is not seven. Uh, TJ Daw, tell us what you saw. Yeah, it's interesting to consider this because the resolution is very seven for his character in that he's, he's suffused with gratitude for everything, for the small town that he'd felt so cooped up in, for the business that had trapped him, for the fact that he's going to jail. He's he's just beaming with joy and gratitude because he gets to live. And that's a seven thing as well is like a truly present seven can be brought to a state of ecstasy by everything, no matter how mundane is there's just such appreciation and gratitude of every single thing. Another possibility for the character, because what occurred to me, like I agree with everything you've both said about his yeah. character being very seven ish. What occurred to me watching it was there's a lot of six ishness in his character as well. For one thing, he's very reactive he does a lot of telling off, you know, even as a little kid, when he walks into the office to get some advice from his father, old man Potter's denigrating him. And as a little kid, he runs right up to Potter and yells at him and even shoves him. There's very few scenes where somebody says something that he doesn't have a quick response to. So there's that reactivity. Another sixth thing that he does, he's very good in a crisis. You know, in an early scene, his younger brother plunges through a frozen lake and he immediately jumps right in. And same with when Clarence jumps into the river. No hesitation, boom, I'm in. So the kind of second-guessing oneself that sixes often do, usually in an emergency, whoosh, that's gone. Uh, also, huge sense of responsibility. This tremendous, like, he understands my younger brother's getting this opportunity to, to go be a researcher at something he's really good at. So instead of him taking over the family business, I'll let him do that. I'll stay. And he's... He always makes the responsible choice in terms of I'm going to defer my own desires and do what's best for my family and for this small town. Yeah. Uh, and he's also, he's very playful. Certainly sevens have that too. But in terms of the way that he relates to his younger brother in the way that he flirts with Mary as they're first getting together, you know, at one scene she runs and her robe comes off and she's hiding in a bush and stuff, just giving it, he starts teasing her. And obviously he's not going to do anything untoward, but he's enjoying being playful like that. So some real sixishness in there, but ultimately what really motivates them? This, is it this desire to be excited or is it a desire to feel secure? Excited makes more sense in lieu of yeah. all the things we're talking about. We always talk about this, that very few portrayals of characters in movies are pitch perfect, right? Uh, they're usually a blend of different things. Every movie, you know, most movies have multiple screenwriters. You have the director, you have the actor, all the bringing things. You have uneven scripts, so forth. So, so, so again, it, it's, you know, there's no sense you know, it's, it would be a silly argument to say, no, he's a six, no, he's a seven kind of thing, right? And again, our goal is to point out what we see. I will say that uh, upon initial watching, and I think even T.J. Dahl, when you and I were talking the other day, I, I mentioned I saw him as a navigating seven. Uh, upon reflection, I actually see a lot of preserving stuff to preserving seven in some of the characteristics that look sort of six-ish, right? That responsibility, that caution, that dutifulness. Something that people don't really understand about preserving sevens is they're actually very responsible 
toward the family, toward you know the, the the expectations of them, and they often resent those responsibilities that are thrust upon them, right? In the in the same way that uh, George Bailey did. But again, you know, uh, certainly sixish themes we could see there. Another thing that we didn't mention was the uh, the very beginning when the angels are talking to each other and deciding to intervene in his life. They talk about the case. And one of them says, uh, I, I forget what he assumes the problem is, but the other angel says, no, it's even worse. He's discouraged. And that is really a sevenish sort of thing is that fear of being discouraged, right? And discouragement is the ultimate sin in a way for sevens of I've lost hope. I've lost, you know, this thing to look forward to. And it's why sevens can fall into depressions and, you know, even suicide at times. Uh, lots of sevens, Robin Williams, a great example, probably Anthony Bourdain that, you know, can be suicidal. So on that happy note, what else? <laughs> any other Enneagram related themes we saw? How about, uh, how about Mr. Potter? Any, any thoughts on <laughs> any, any thoughts on his enneagram style? Is is there any question that he's an eight? <laughs> Do we need to even talk about it? <laughs> yeah, I, I think he's probably a good example of a type eight, right? Not uh, not the most compassionate uh, human being. A any others? I did want to go back to George Bailey real quick. One yeah. thing that was interesting is I, I agree with everything that you said, T.J. Daw, about that. But I was seeing it through the lens, and of course I'm biased on this, but through the lens of as a seven going to his support strategy of type one, you know, the feeling like he needs to do the right thing, the responsibility. I know that I obviously as a one, I, I feel those things. And so, and ones and sixes can have a lot, you know, there's a lot of overlap there sometimes. So I think that can also help to explain some of that, you know, just reinforcing that, yes, he, he was experiencing those things. Any other characters? Uh, go ahead, TJ Doe. Yeah. Just to say a word about Potter as the unhealthy eight, you know, one just to flesh that out a little bit, he's a business baron and he wants to own everything and he wants to control everything. And it really bothers him that he can't get control of this one little business. It's the holdout. And at one point he offers to hire George Bailey to work for him. And he offers him a salary of $40,000 a year, which one of the things a uh, trivia on IMDb said is that's the equivalent of about three or $400,000 today as opposed to the approximately $46,000 equivalent today that he was earning at the time, as well as yearly business trips to New York and Europe. So he's, he knows exactly who this guy is and exactly what he wants. And he's dangling the prize in front of him, which George is initially attracted to. But like that's Potter's motivation the entire movie, is I want to control everyone and everything. And if there's somebody I can't control, that sticks in my craw. Mary, the wife, I think is maybe a pitch perfect preserving two. You know, uh, women in movies, or especially in old movies, quite often have that role. The good, dutiful, loving, pretty, but not aggressively beautiful wife. She's very family oriented. She's very home oriented. You know, one of the big motifs in the, or one of the big elements is the house they move into, which is this decrepit old mansion that the locals throw a rock at and try and break a window for good luck. And that's where they move in. You know, they give up all their money for their honeymoon, and she immediately sets that up and somehow fixes that up into something livable, even that night with you know, rain dripping through the ceiling. And there's a little chicken on a rotisserie you know, over the fireplace that's being powered by the record player. It's very domestic. She makes the place beautiful and warm and cozy. And on their wedding night, 
She said, remember the night we broke the windows in this old house? This is what I wished for. I, I would agree with that. Not a really detailed character, as was the case in most of those movies, but uh, that, that that sounds pretty good to me. TJ and Grassi, anything you would add to that? Uh, no, that that pretty much wraps up. Yeah, I, I, I agree about Mary. And I'm not sure there's many other characters, you know, yeah. <laughs> you can we can quote you uh, comment on some external traits, but it's hard to really right. say. You know that well. Right. There could be a half dozen different uh, types they're going <laughs> for there. Exactly right. Exactly right. A couple of uh, you know final observations I'll make about the movie. Okay, we already talked about how it's not really as much as a of a Christmas movie as we tend to think about. But also, it's funny because when I started to watch it, they always list the uh, parental warnings at the beginning. Right. And the parental warnings were, it was a fairly lengthy list um, going into this movie. And I haven't seen the movie in years. And one of the things was strong language and sexual situations. And I'm thinking, what? And then as I started watching it, I'm thinking, yeah, man, this is pretty, you know, these are not things that they would do in movies today. Right. There was this, you know, there were, he was pretty, hostile toward women uh, at certain points, right? He was pretty demeaning of women. There's the scene with the maid where the brother actually chases her out of the kitchen and grabs her rear end on the way out, you know? And, you know, of course, the stereotype of the sassy black maid, you know, which was very common in movies of that time. So I, 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 I was surprised at, you know, again, when you go back and you watch something of a different era through today's eyes, how jarring some of the scenes were, right, um, in that sense. Uh, thoughts on that, guys? Well, one thing to throw in there, too, is the character of Violet, supporting character. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, she's kind of the vamp. She's the town vamp. And mm -hmm. what jumped out for me is probably a transmitting, too, mm -hmm. in that she loves getting attention. And at one point, you know, even when she's a little girl, Mary says to her, you're in love with every boy. And she says, what's wrong with that? So it's like there's there's two kinds of women you can be, and they're both twos. There's the <laughs> there's the good, dutiful right. home and family two, or there's the nasty, vampish, you know, sexually aggressive two. Right, right. TJ and Grassi, any final thoughts on It's a Wonderful Life? Uh no, I think that that pretty much sums it up. I enjoy I hadn't seen it in many years, uh, you know, until I watched it to to prepare for this. And I <laughs> the funniest thing that I noticed in the movie was, you know, Jimmy Stewart's playing the character, you know, obviously past the childhood, but the first scene where we see him after childhood. He's supposed to, I don't know how old he's supposed to be, 20 years old, maybe 21. And Jimmy Stewart's mid 40s, a grown man. It's like, you know, it didn't, it was, it was comical how it's like, yeah, yeah right. You're, you're not that young. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like the, it's like the high school movie with a, you know, the kid with a beard, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, full. Uh, so I, I, I agree. That was uh, entertaining and uh, joying. You, you were talking about Jimmy Stewart's range earlier, saying, well, that might yeah. be the one area where he didn't, he didn't his range wasn't so good. <laughs> Yeah. I, I Again, I'll say I, I enjoyed the movie as well. I, I, obviously, I'd seen it you know many times before in the past, and uh, but it had been a long time, and uh, so it was nice to see it again. And 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 really, for me, the key takeaway was appreciating the, the talent of Jimmy Stewart and um, his ability to engage an audience and to be likable, and you know, for you not to be able to take your eyes off, and for him to be able to express so much, you know, 
you know, with with so little effort. Uh, really enjoyed it. One final thing I'll make. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember the show 30-something from the 1980s by Ed Zwick and Marshall Herskovitz, I think. Their production company was called Bedford Falls Productions, and they were highly influenced by that movie. 30-something is a TV series back in the 80s that people either loved or hated. It was really, really popular at the time, but has had almost no afterlife. And each episode would end with a scene, you know, kind of a graphic from It's a Wonderful Life and that line from the song, Dance by the Light of the Moon. Is that what it was? Buffalo the, Gal. Uh, the song from Buffalo Gal. Yeah, that, that line. So anyway, that, that kept striking me as I was watching again, you know, this piece of really obscure trivia. Okay. Oh. All one right. one last thing to point out too is yeah. that there's something I think really forish about the framing device being a man on the verge of suicide. Again, very unusual for what's come to be a beloved Christmas classic in a family movie. And then an earlier scene in George Bailey's backstory is he works as a delivery boy for a pharmacist, and he's there. Yes. You know, we we see the day that the pharmacist received a telegram that his son died of Spanish flu, and he's just broken with grief and accidentally fills the prescription wrong, uh, creating poison pills with George is smart enough to notice, but he doesn't want to hear it. He sends them out. And then eventually when he comes back, not having delivered the pills, he attacks him, slaps him on the side of the head, draws blood, yeah. which yes. I read as a point of trivia. The actor actually slapped him and actually drew blood. But wow. all of that, the compassion, the grief, the relief, the fact that he embraces George once he finds out his mistake, very, very forish, I find. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. just how much sadness and despair is there, and that really appealed to me when I was a kid when I watched it. You know, <laughs> not that I realized that, but like this is a Christmas movie with depth, and the movie hit me right in the heart. And yes, it's Jimmy Stewart is very easy to mimic, and many, many people do. Which, and this movie has passed into the common language. People know of it, even if they haven't seen it. It's very easy to dismiss it and him as cliches when I think it really delivers and so does he. And it actually brings tears to my eyes every time I watch it. And I think it holds up as one of the great movies that's ever been made. Yeah, I would agree. Watch It's a Wonderful Life. It's worth it. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Okay, so let's move on to our second movie now. Uh, 1983 is a Christmas story. And TJ and Gracia, why don't you tell us a little bit about a Christmas story? Sure. Growing up, this was my favorite Christmas movie. Uh, When I was a kid, TNT had 24 hours of a Christmas story. So I would get up early. I was always an early riser, but I would get up before everybody else on Christmas morning and make sure I watched it 
before we got up, everyone else, you know, got up and opened the presents. So that was my Christmas tradition every year. So Christmas Stories made in 1983, directed by Bob Clark of Porky's fame. Funny, <laughs> and Porky's <laughs> fans out there. <laughs> Two very similar movies. Right, yeah. <laughs> Childhood nostalgia, we'll say. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so the movie takes place in 1940, give or take. There's actually a little bit of debate about whether it's 1939 or 1940, but we'll go with 1940. Uh, it's the story of Ralphie Parker, played by Peter Billingsley, who has a bit part cameo in Elf, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. Ralph is a nine-year-old boy who wants a BB gun for Christmas. And it's not just any BB gun. He wants the Red Rider carbine action, 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing which tells time. Uh, which apparently is not a real BB gun. That was right. They made it up for the – or Gene Shepard, I guess, made that up for his book, which they then – made a custom one for the for the film. Right. And the plot revolves around Ralphie's his many foiled attempts to convince the adults around him that it's a good idea for a kid to have a BB gun and he's continually rebuffed with the now famous line you'll shoot your eye out. And spoiler alert, he does get the BB gun and he does almost <laughs> shoot his eye out. So <laughs> for the party pooping adults it's you know yes. score one for them. See? See? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and there's several subplots throughout the movie. One's about his father fighting with the furnace, fighting with the neighbor's uh, 785 <laughs> smelly old hound dogs. There's the battle of the lamp. You know, his father wins this major award. It's a lamp in the shape of a woman's leg with uh, fishnet stockings, which Ralphie is very enamored with when he first sees it. And the battle between the mother and the father over uh, the lamp in the house. And then uh, there's a subplot of the bullies, you know, Scott Farkas, tormenting Ralphie and his brother and his friends. But the main plot of the film is the, is the BB gun, which he does eventually get, which one of the last lines of the film is that he says it's the best Christmas present he ever received. Uh, a classic. I don't know if TNT or TBS still does the 24 Hours of a Christmas Story, but I know that they've done that up until recently. And in fact, they extended it to both state both channels right i mean mm -hmm. it used to be on one of them and then they start doing it on the other as well i guess it's an easy way to program a day it, it is a great movie uh, i always enjoy watching it for me the highlight of it is darren mcgavin i will watch mm -hmm. anything with darren mcgavin in it and i think he's great in this uh tj daw tell us about enneagram related themes in a christmas story well, just to take the baton about Darren McGavin, who plays the dad, whose first name is never mentioned. He's always referred to as the old man. The old man. A mild man. One of the best comedic performances I've ever seen in any movie, and probably the best preserving eight I've ever seen in a movie. So he is at war, and he's always at war with domestic things. So the big thing is the furnace. And as soon as he hears this rattling from downstairs, he perks right up. And what was he doing before that happened? He was grousing about his car that froze up, and he, and he just curses. That Oldsmobile would freeze up on the equator in the middle of summer. So, you know, he's always at war with the car, and then suddenly, oh, the furnace makes a loud clank, and he says, it's a clinker, and rushes downstairs excited and angry so that he can battle with this furnace. And he spews this improvised soliloquy of gibberish as, as he battles the thing and smoke comes out of the vent and he's always cursing like this. Uh, also, the leg lamp is very much like it's it's something from the domestic arena and it's something he puts in the window and he stands out on the sidewalk and neighbors just happen to walk by and all gathers. He points it out to them. It's this symbol of his own uh, power and his own achievement and his own like putting one over on the system. And then he's a turkey addict. So on Christmas Day, 
you know, the mother brings the turkey out just to baste it or maybe to put the stuffing in. We're not quite sure. It's not ready. And he can't stop himself from getting a taste of it. And then, of course, the neighbor's dogs come in and take it away. And he is furious and devastated. And that is a big preserving thing. I mean, preservers don't all focus on the same things, but one of them is food. And if a preserver has a food that they were really looking forward to having, they've been thinking about it all day, maybe all week, and then for whatever reason, that is taken away from them. That is one of the big catastrophes that can happen in their life. Uh, another thing is he bargains for the Christmas tree. So, you know, and then the narrator, you know, he's described as being like an Arab trader, only twice as shrewd. So he loves getting a deal. Another big preserving thing and another big preserving eight thing. But setting all of that aside, and that, you know, a bit of trivia I read, don't know if it's true, was that it's possible Jack Nicholson was going to play this role. As brilliant of an actor as he is, I just can't imagine anyone anywhere ever doing better than Darren McGavin did in that role. No. Just a note-perfect comic performance. And completely in alignment with the character. I agree with you. I saw that about Jack Nicholson as well. And just can't imagine how different a movie this would have been <laughs> uh, had Jack Nicholson been in the, in the movie. So I agree. And good call on the the preserving eight thing. You know, I, I, I wasn't quite so sure, right? Uh, I mean, you make a really good and compelling case, and I agree with it. Uh, I was playing around with, there were some three-ish elements to him, right? Uh, you know, the competition, winning the bigger, you know, the uh, very prestigious award, you know, sort of thing when it was really just a contest um, and setting kind of a goal for himself or speed to change the tire, you know, but those things are consistent with the eight as well, right? I mean, I know I'm exceptionally competitive and, you know, I'm an eight. And so I, I think that's, that's a great call. I also think... I want to touch for um, on the instinctual bias theme that I don't know that we so much talked about it, but it, there's a whole lot of preserving in this movie, right? And I think for me, uh, what we see in both of these movies we've talked about so far is this sense of nostalgia. Nostalgia is a preserving thing. Now, of course, everybody has a feeling for nostalgia, but I, when I think about these things, I think about curling up on the sofa in front of a fire with a blanket and, you know, some snacks, popcorn, whatever it is, you know, very much a preserving experience. And I think that holidays like Christmas really tap into that. Uh, you made reference to the Hallmark Channel, which is in the midst of its six months of Christmas movies, uh, you know, <laughs> that it does every year. And uh, that's preserving world, right? It is all about these happy, comfortable, formulaic, I know what's going to happen next, I know what's going to happen next sort of stories, uh, very structured, very process-oriented things that we see in the preserving domain. So this fear of shooting your eye out. Okay, you know, again, you know, very much it, fear of the bully, so forth. So huge preserving theme through this movie, as well as uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Again, kind of a seven-ish undercurrent. I don't know that I could say any of the characters were a compelling seven, right? Ralphie, eh, you know, I, I don't know, maybe. Although I think the kid actor was great. Peter Billingsley was perfect for this. But it's this idea of excitement, right? You know, but again, that's just being a kid too right and and, and th this again where we get to okay well is it just being a kid or is it being a seven and you know that we so often run into when we're thinking about enneagram types tj and gracia enneagram related thoughts with a christmas story 
Okay, well, I guess we'll go on to Ralphie, the main character, and I'm a little torn on this one, so I'll throw mm -hmm. out a couple options yeah. here, and you guys can tear it apart. I guess I should say it's also, I'm always a little bit nervous typing children, Yeah. but, you know, it's a fictional portrayal, That's so right. we'll just kind of take it on its own on its own terms. I was a little stuck. I was going back and forth between Ralphie as a preserving three or a transmitting nine, mm -hmm. and I feel like... Those two, similar to a like maybe a transmitting five or the preserving seven, are almost like the mirror mm -hmm. images of each other. Mm -hmm. Preserving three and transmitting nine seem to have some similar characteristics. Mm -hmm. Ralphie was very there's a you know he he's constantly daydreaming. That's a theme throughout the film. You know that feels sort of nine-ish. You know when the going mm -hmm. gets tough, retreat to the inner sanctum and daydream about it. There's a bit of a passive aggressiveness to him. You know, he's not going to come right out. You know, an eight kid's going to say, hey, mom, give me a BB gun for Christmas. But he's trying to be sneaky about it. He puts yeah. the magazine in his mother's magazine. He's going to write the essay for the teacher. But, uh, but he's also very focused on, clearly, he wants to succeed in getting this BB gun. He has a singular focus and drive to get it. You know, in the scene with Santa Claus, he freezes up. You know, Santa says, how about a nice football? He's like, football? What's a football? You know, he starts to go down the slide. He realizes his mistake. He traps himself on the slide and claws his way back up to tell Santa what he really wants. And then, of course, Santa tells him he'll shoot his eye out and pushes him back down the slide. Um, but I was I was torn on which direction. I don't know. Do, do you guys see either of those in there? Do you agree, disagree? Well, I, so so I'll, I'll go here. So I think the uh, transmitting nine is a good call, right? I hadn't uh, thought too much about it. But uh, as you're talking about him, he reminds me so much of my third son, who is a transmitting nine, who is just easygoing, likable, but a wolf in sheep's clothing, and, <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways, right? So when, you know, just like Ralphie, when my son wants something, you can see the wheels starting to turn, right? He doesn't want to come out and say, hey, you know, how about this? He starts easing into it. You can see him, you know, say, hey, yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm not saying that. I, I was just thinking, you know, I saw these new new sneakers online. They're pretty cool. I'm not saying I want them, but, you know, they're, they're pretty cool, you know. And then he comes back and he says, yeah, those sneakers, they're going to be on sale. So, you know, and so, <laughs> you know, and very much Ralphie, okay. But also this sort of sweet, innocent, daydreamy, you know, sort of airy quality. The As you said, TJ, the transmitting nine is an Enneagram type that is very misidentified, often identified as a three or maybe a seven or, or something like that. I, I, that's, a, that's an interesting call to me, so I, I like it. TJ Daw, any uh, thoughts on that? One thing that supports the possibility of him being a nine is the scene when he turns and confronts the bully that's been tormenting him through the movie. Mm -hmm. Also, the narration overall is, I think, very nine-ish, of looking back fondly on one's childhood, including presenting bullying, like usually the camera's sped up, or so, so you know, the characters are skittering across the screen and fun music is playing. It's almost like a scene from a silent film. So it's it's like saying, oh, we all got bullied as a kid. It was kind right. of harmless. It wasn't right. that fun, <laughs> as opposed to the fact that it's a genuinely traumatic experience for a lot of people. Yes, yes. So there's a nine-ishness there, and then there's a scene where he finally turns and confronts the bully and then ends up beating the absolute shit out of him, drawing blood from his face. Yeah. And the bully doesn't get one punch in, and Ralph just sits on his chest, giving him blow to the face after blow to the face, which seemed antithetical to Nine, unless you consider 
the pattern of nines repressing anger. And sometimes that placid Until it blows. erupts. Yes. And yes. then, whoa, be careful. And then how does he react after the fact? He's horrified at what he's done. And he's certain that punishment is going to come, which doesn't. But he's not proud of the fact that he's powerful. He's, he's not happy that he vanquished yes. the bully. He really hates that that side of him came out. Yes. One other yeah. thing that's thrown in there is his daydreaming is you could see, I can definitely see the nineishness of it, but particularly being a four, I can see a lot of four in there. Mm. So, because his daydreams are always self aggrandizing. I'm protecting my mm -hmm. cowering family from bandits with my new rifle. My teacher, who, you know, who's presented almost like this Victorian woman, uh, is, is melodramatically tormented by all of these horrific papers that all the other students have written. But when she sees Ralphie's and when she reads it, you know, the theme from Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet swells and she falls in love with the glory of his prose. And he's lifted up on the shoulders of his classmates, pretty much like the opening scene of Rushmore, which is a Rushmore, right. <laughs> fantasy. Right. But the most forish fantasy of all is when he fantasizes about returning to his family after he's been struck blind because they washed out his mouth with soap so many times <laughs> and they cry and they admit their error, and they beg for his forgiveness as he smiles at the camera. And every four has had that fantasy, that my family will one day realize just how cruel they've been to me, and they will beg my forgiveness, and it will be too late. Yeah, great, great, great observations. And I, again, I, th I think they're all really valid. The mother, again, I think probably another character who is, um, you know, maybe a preserving two, maybe a six. There was a lot of six stuff going on with the mother, I felt. Let's see. No other characters jump out at me as, you know, being clearly defined. Um, Enneagram types. Go ahead, DJ. TJ. One last thing about the dad being uh, preserving eight is it's the dad that gives him the rifle at the end. And yeah. the scene is actually really beautiful when he gets. I, I almost cry every time. It's it's a really a beautiful scene. He's incredibly tender. He's gentle. The mother didn't know that the dad bought him the rifle, and dad just kind of justifies it, saying, "You know, I got a rifle like that when I was a kid." And yeah. he really does care for his son, and very much like an eight, it's like I want my son to have this kind of manly. Uh, gift to be able to protect himself to to be tough yeah yeah great great observation okay so a christmas story uh i i you know as i watched it again again it's one of those movies you've seen a, a bunch of times um I, I was a little too old to appreciate this as a kid i was you know already a, an adult when that movie came out uh but um you know really a good movie I, I, I really enjoyed watching it. It's the first time I've sat down and watched it all the way through in quite a few years. So, uh, again, I recommend A Christmas Story. And I thought, I'll also say, I read somewhere that uh, it took them forever to find the actor to play Ralphie. And they hit a home run with this one because I think Peter Billingsley was just perfect look, you know, for their character. It did a great job, really compelling. So, mm -hmm. really, really good acting job, I felt. And let me say one more thing about while we're talking about nostalgia, this might make you guys feel depressed, makes me feel depressed. The movie's made in 1983, set in 1940, 
there's mm-hmm. almost as much time has passed now between today and when the movie was made as between the nostalgia they were depicting when they made it in the 80s. So thank you for that. If they, if they made yeah, that movie thanks. today, uh, it would be uh, set in, you know, the early 80s. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I was in college a, when that movie came out. So. <laughs> and the Ralphie today would want a, a Star Wars pistol or something like that. Right, right. right. Um, yeah. And, and I'll also just say that uh, we, we didn't mention this, but it was a hit. Yeah. I mean, a modest hit, but it was a profitable movie uh, when it came out. I mean, it wasn't a big hit, it, it, but it was a very inexpensive movie to make and made a number of, I think it made about $20 million on a $3 million budget. So, um, but certainly with all the replays that it's got, whoever gets, has the rights to that movie has made a bit of money over the years. All right. So movie number three is Elf. Uh, Elf is my Christmas movie, right? Whenever I think of Christmas time, um, you know, I think I want to watch Elf. It does. It's not a Christmas story. It's not uh, a wonderful life. Uh, it's because as a kid, I always enjoyed Elf so much. Now, only kidding. Uh, Elf was made in 2003. <laughs> I actually saw it in the movie theater. I remember in Mount Pocono, Pennsylvania, up in uh, this tiny little movie theater in the Pocono Mountains, and uh, enjoyed it then and have laughed my butt off every time I've seen the movie since then. I just think this is uh, one of the most entertaining, charming, sweet funny movies that uh, you'll come across, right? This is obvious. I think it's the most, well, no, a Christmas story is about Christmas for sure. And Elf is certainly a Christmas movie as well. It is really about uh, that. So um, it is a 2003 American Christmas comedy film directed by John Favreau. Boy, I'll tell you, when I saw Swingers way back in the day, I never thought John Favreau would be John Favreau. But man, oh man, oh man, has that guy gone on and done some things since then. Starring Will Ferrell, I'm sorry, with hands down his best role. He was born to play this character. Chris Farley and Jim Carrey were also considered uh, for this role, but, you know, who probably would have been fine. I'm not a Jim Carrey fan. Chris Farley would have been an interesting choice, but, man, Will Farrell was amazing in this movie. James Caan, our friend from The Godfather and from Heat, which we talk about in a later episode, Thief. I'm sorry, Thief. Thank you. Yes. Zoe Deschanel, uh, Mary Steenburgen, and uh, in addition to Ed Asner, who is a gruff but lovable Santa Claus, one of my all-time favorites, Bob Newhart. Okay, you guys, again, probably don't remember the Bob Newhart show from back in its time. Uh, I saw Nick one. at night. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, TJ, it was just night. When both of the Bob Newhart shows were on, but always some of my favorites. He was great as Papa Elf. So plot is uh, on Christmas Eve, Santa Claus is off doing his thing, uh, visiting an orphanage and a little orphan boy uh, crawls into his sack and is taken back to the North Pole. Once he is discovered there at the workshop, the elves name him Buddy after the diapers brand label and Papa Elf, played again by uh, uh, Bob Newhart, adopts him. But he is accepted by the elf community and grows up thinking he is an elf, but soon learns that he's really human. Fact that becomes abundantly clear when he is twice the size of everybody else uh, when he grows up. Uh, Papa Elf explains that Buddy was born to Walter Hobbs and Susan Wells, and that Susan put him up for adoption prior to her death. 
Walter now works as a children's book publisher at the Empire State Building in New York City. Now, I have to editorial comment here, say James Kahn as a children's book editor <laughs> is a little bit of a stretch, right? Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I think he's good in this movie. He's unaware of Buddy's existence. Santa reveals that Walter is on the naughty list due to his selfishness but suggest Buddy could help him redeem Walter. So Buddy heads off to New York from the North Pole, um, having sort of a rank-and-bass Christmas shows like uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the mm -hmm. Snowman and all that sort of stuff. So it was very much that sort of stop-action experience on his trip, right? Uh, so he heads to New York. He's first confused as somebody there to deliver a Christmas gram. So there's a bit of an awkward scene where, you know, he's expected to sing a song to James Kahn and he has to make one up on the go, which is quite funny. Now, he gets ejected from the Empire State Building, the building where his father works, and somebody says to him, go back down to Gimbel's where you belong. Now, Gimbel's is clearly a stand-in for Macy's here, and uh, Gimbel's was a department store, but long closed by this time. And uh, he there is mistaken for part of the staff because... In case I didn't mention this, he is dressed like a six foot three inch elf. And uh, so he takes it upon himself to completely redecorate the uh, Christmas section of Gimbel's. He becomes smitten with the Zoe de Chanel character whose name is Jovi. Kind of a mismatch in uh, partnering. I'm not quite sure what she saw in him, you know. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it was it was part of the part of the script, so we'll go along with it. Now, he goes back to see Walter. Uh, he, I think, he calls him because he ends up getting arrested after confronting the not real Santa Claus, played by Artie Lang, who used to be on the uh, Howard Stern show, uh, because you smell like you smell like beef, beef and cheese. Beef and cheese. <laughs> you sit on a throne of lies. <laughs> so he ends up in jail and um, calls uh, Walter to bail him out, which he does. Walter gets a paternity test, finds out that, yes, indeed, Buddy is his son at the suggestion of the doctor, played by John Favreau. He takes him home to meet his wife and son, and Buddy is reluctantly taken into the fold where we start to learn of all of Buddy's lovable quirks, such as a love of sugar and maple syrup um, and uh, a great ability to burp. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but in the credits... There's actually credit given to the person who did Buddy's burp uh, during that <laughs> scene. So, uh, so and a uh, magnificent performance it was. It, I might it, add. It, it certainly was. You know, so that, that that guy, whoever he is, has a has a career ahead of him in the uh, burp uh, voiceovers. So let's see what else happens here, because for me, the first two thirds or so of Elf are perfect. The ending gets a little silly when the whole santa claus and the uh the sleigh thing um happen but that is what happened so uh, something i forgot to mention is that the books uh, the, the children's publishing uh, business is struggling right and so uh, walter has to come up with a solution so they decide to hire miles fincher played by peter dinklage in a wonderful 
little cameo, uh, Peter Dinklage, who plays the uh, the dwarf brother in Game of Thrones, and uh, who Buddy mistakes for an elf. Now, I would say <laughs> that the Peter Dinklage character is probably an eight, right? Yeah, uh, based that's... on his <laughs> his mixed martial arts reaction to Buddy uh, in, in this sort of situation. Okay, so let's see. The published company is is failing. Again, Buddy creates a bit of a mess. Uh, he decides to leave. He leaves his note, apology note on an Etch-A-Sketch, they, and he leaves. They go off looking for him, also encounter Santa Claus, who is at this time having technical problems with the sleigh, apparently in Central Park. And they use uh, helping people recapture the spirit of Christmas to reignite the sleigh, save Christmas, redeem Walter, and all go to live happily ever after. At the end of the movie, Buddy writes a children's book based on his experience that also saves the company, and life goes on happily ever after. Uh, who wants to share any Graham-related thoughts on Elf? I'll start. Um, I thought it was interesting at the very beginning. We were talking about our Christmas experiences, and TJ Daw, you were talking about sort of Christmas having a two-ish feel, and Mario, you were talking about Christmas as a seven. And I feel like... Elf is a good example of a film and a character that it, it's portraying a character that basically would never exist in real life because I feel like Buddy is a perfect combination of a two and a seven. He's striving to feel excited while striving to feel con- like he wants to feel connected in an exciting way and he wants to feel excited in a connecting way. It's the two. There's almost no situation where he's doing one without the other. So that it was interesting you guys brought those two up because Elf is the perfect Christmas movie and maybe embodying the the two perfect uh, Christ, the spirit of the the two Christmas types. So yeah. I'll throw Great. that out there. What do you think? All right, good. TJ Daw. Yeah, one of the seven things that really jumped out to me and probably my favorite comedic element of the whole movie is the sense of possibility. There's just a comedically blatant disregard for the laws of physics and the way things actually work. <laughs> so when Buddy travels from the North Pole to New York. It just shows from a distance him merrily tromping through a high mountain range, dressed in tights, no supplies with him, no indication of where he sleeps or what he eats when he shows up. He's, you know, his clothes aren't bedraggled at all. He's not tired. He's not hungry. Uh, when he decorates the department store overnight, you know, he's just tireless. When he helps, when he helps the kid win a snowball fight, you know, they've sped up the camera. So he's whipping snowballs, you know, the speed of a machine gun. And they really set it up like an action film. So they do all of these things, but and that, that is a very sevenish thing because in the seven mentality, anything is possible, even the impossible. We'll find a way. We'll attack it with enough enthusiasm that we'll make it work. So I thought that was a consistent motif throughout the movie and one that I very much enjoyed. So, uh, so for me, uh, so this is interesting. I hear what you're saying, TJ and Grassi, about the seven and the two here, because there is this theme of connection. Uh, look, uh, the, the striving to feel excited is how we describe the. Um, and if there is anybody striving to feel excited, you know, ever portrayed in film, it is Buddy the Elf, right? I mean, he is just this ball of wonder and amazement, and and. A Again, played by Will Ferrell in just uh, an amazing, amazing portrayal. I mean, I could sit here and watch him eat cotton balls all day long, right? <laughs> I mean, just, you know, I mean, just the, you know, the glee and the amazement to which he brought. Now, I would see him as a transmitting seven, 
Okay, you know, other people would call this the sexual subtype. And now, there's nothing sexual about Buddy, right? There is this romance. But what I see in transmitting sevens is they're the kind of this, this super type of sort of the stereo-charged seven right uh, high energy very highly verbal it's kind of the robin williams uh or jim carrey stereotype of the seven you know of excessively verbal and so forth but to your point tj you know we're talking about somebody who thinks they're an elf here right we're talking about a fictional character and it's going to be played to effect so it's not a real life portrayal but uh but i certainly see that for me elf just captures uh, again, I'll go back to the seven thing. All the things I really love about sevens, and I see this as somebody who's married to one and who has two sons who are sevens, of this innocence, this good intention, right, uh, of just this wanting others to be happy. Sevens get a bad wrap in a lot of the Enneagram literature as being narcissistic and selfish and uh, only thinking about themselves. That's simply not my experience with sevens. Yes, of course, everybody's self-absorbed at times, but in my experience, sevens want other people to be happy. Now, sometimes that's self-serving, right? I'll be happy if you're happy, right? You're bringing me down, so I want you to be happy. But other times I think, you know, the thing I notice about sevens is just this lack of ill intent that is there. So for me, there was seven all over this character. I think James Kahn will never be anything but an eight in my eyes. I mean, just, you know, uh, I think I, I can't think of a movie portrayal he's ever uh, been in, you know, from Sonny Corleone to uh, Frank in, in Thief, uh, just on and on down the line. James Conn is is an eight. The uh, Mary Steenburgen character, perhaps a nine, but kind of two-ish as well, right? Uh, you know, we see a lot of that sort of thing. And Ed Asner, another one. I don't know that Ed Asner could ever play anything other than an eight uh, either in my book. So again, kind of a, a gruff sort of uh, Santa Claus. Bob Newhart, a nine. Right. Uh, Bob Newhart has that slow, you know, self-deprecating nine-ish sort of quality that he brings to all his roles. So I thought that was a good one. Zoe Deschanel, TJ Daw, I'm curious, would you place an Enneagram type on her? Yeah, four. <laughs> <laughs> what would that be, TJ? Right, yeah. yeah. So when we first meet her, she's immediately cynical about Buddy's enthusiasm. She says, please stop talking to me. I'm just trying to get through the holidays. So she works at this department store in elf garb, but it's just a job. She doesn't care about it. She has no warm feelings about Christmas. Uh, you know, when he tells her about singing, she says, thanks, but I don't sing. I can sing. I just choose not to sing, especially in front of other people. And her arc as a character is singing Christmas carols in public to inspire other people to remember the meaning of Christmas, which for a four, that is a, that is a, that is a big goal to imagine doing that. To sing Santa Claus is Coming to Town, one of the most trite and happy and major key Christmas carols of all in public and to do it with enthusiasm and to do it in a way that opens the door for other people to join her. It's like, yep, that is a huge journey for a four. Uh, what does she see in Buddy? I think what she sees in him is that she is a female character in a comedy movie. And that pattern <laughs> happens a lot, especially in that era. You know, a lot of Adam Sandler movies have that motif yes. as well. Is yeah. The male is kind of a man-child. 
Uh, Seth yes. Rogen movies had this a lot too. And the woman is beautiful and intelligent and has a lot going for her and just mysteriously is attracted to the man child. And he is not <laughs> required to mature in the slightest. Mm-hmm. It's telling a lot of the 18 to 24 year old male audience that these movies are targeted at exactly what they want to hear. Yes, yes. You can sit around, smoke dope, and Catherine Heigl will still fall in love with you, right? So, yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I, 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 great, great call. Yeah, so um, it seems it seems kind of foolish to me, the uh, the character. What was interesting is in the um, original script, she was not supposed to sing. Uh, she was not, uh, it was not called for, for her to sing. But then John Favreau found out that she is a singer uh, because she was in a band as well. Duet, I forget exactly what it was. Yeah. yeah uh, you know, so he said, okay, well, let's have her sing. And I, I thought she did a great job of that. Other thoughts on Elf? Okay, one thing to say about Bob Newhart. Absolutely agree that he's a nine. Funny coincidence, a friend of mine and collaborator had one line in this movie, which was partially filmed in Vancouver and was also Bob Newhart's stand-in. And that friend is himself a nine. And he, um, so he was on set when Newhart was doing all his lines. They used a lot of forced perspective to make him seem really short. So there was a lot of work for his stand-in. And he said when they were filming, he would do the lines. His characteristic stammer would come at a different point with every take. And every time it was funny. And just to reference Bob Newhart's TV career, uh, His second sitcom in the 80s, Newhart, not the Bob Newhart show. Newhart was the one that I knew and loved, where he was running an inn in Vermont. I read a book on sitcoms, on sitcom writing once, and it described the two types of protagonists in a sitcom. There's the active and the reactive type. So the active protagonist in a sitcom is making a bad decision and going out and causing a problem, and then that problem needs to be cleaned up. So, you know, Lucy in in I Love Lucy or Ralph Cramden or Michael Scott are classic examples of that. Then the reactive is the one who isn't making bad decisions. They're kind of the calm center as all the craziness is happening around them. And their role is to try and solve or contain the craziness. And Bob Newhart's the epitome of that. And it is a very nine-ish role. And yes. something some of his co-stars said about working with him is he always saw them as ensembles. It was never a vehicle for him, even though his name was literally in the title. And he, he's the one that had the big career before the show started. But he was perfectly happy to seed one brilliant comedic moment after another to his co-stars and his supporting actors. And that is the generosity that's very characteristic of a nine as well. And, and, and I will say that anyone who has not seen, I, I can never remember, the Bob Newhart show was the first one, right? And then Newhart was the second one about the, uh, yeah. in Vermont. Both great, but the second series was just uh, a genius ensemble. You know, I still every so often say, hi, I'm Larry, this is my brother Daryl, this is my other brother Daryl. You know, just one of those signs that's, that, that one of those lines that stands out, you know, for eternity. But the Peter Scolari character was fantastic, you know, but just up and down the line and nobody did better reaction shots than bob newhart okay so um i completely agree uh tj and Grassi, go ahead you were going to say something about yes it. okay so i wanted to go back to walter hobbs for a minute so I'd, I'd like you to elaborate on that mario a little bit i saw walter hobbs as more of a three i got more of a three-ish vibe from him uh if for no other reason i feel like if you boil walter hobbs down to his essence is he striving for power or is he striving for success 
I feel like he's more striving for success than power. So uh, tell, explain to me what you're seeing in there. Fair enough. Uh, what I'm seeing is James Caan, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I'm seeing James Caan trying to play a three, perhaps, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, and just still being his essential James Conness underneath it. So that's that's a completely valid argument. And I think if you look at the character and the issues and so forth, then, yeah, a three is an argument I could buy. Yeah. But, that, that makes sense, though. <laughs> yeah, but I but I can't buy that guy as a three, right? Uh, you know, so yeah. Uh, when when his boss, Mister Greenway, comes in and chews him out for the pages, you'd imagine James Con standing up, yeah, and, yeah, you know, right. punching him in the face. <laughs> but he was a little timid in that scene. It seemed for for a James Con. Yeah, exactly right. Now Peter Dinklage, great, great eight-ish character Mm -hmm. in this very different from the game of thrones character Mm -hmm. i I just thought that 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 little part was just fantastic one of the funniest scenes in the uh in the movie Um, let's see so i guess that's it about uh elf i'll I'll just say that uh, we already mentioned that uh peter billingsley did have a um a cameo uh, ralphie from a christmas story well we, so let's say so he was ming ming who he goes uncredited in in the credits but but he does say his name he's uh buddy's su- elf supervisor in the santa's workshop in the beginning of the film yes um let's see artie lang again the the comedian artie lang plays the uh santa claus uh the fake santa claus who smells of beef and cheese <laughs> <laughs> Which I imagine Artie Lang does smell of beef and cheese, so it's probably you. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, so and hopefully I'll never find that out for uh, you know in, in in person, much as I like. And uh, nice, nice little Lisa voiceover cameo from one of my favorite folks, Leon Redbone, who played uh, the snowman named Leon. Uh, and the, the the snowman was actually even made to look like Leon Redbone uh, in, in in real life. So run out and see Elf, or at least uh, make time to see it when it shows up on cable uh, within the next couple of weeks. Uh, my my pick of the podcast for movies to watch. Now that said. We're going to move on to uh, what I would say is my second favorite of these four movies. And uh, again, we can get into whether or not, well, we will get into whether or not this is a Christmas movie. But we are going to talk about the movie Die Hard. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It's currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. TJ Dahl, tell us about Die Hard, please. Yeah, Die Hard's a very obscure movie. I'm sure most people listening to this are not familiar with it. So let me tell you what happens in it. It's the story of John McClane, played by Bruce Willis, who's a New York cop. He flies to L.A. to attend a Christmas party at the corporate tower, where his somewhat estranged wife, Holly, works, played by Bonnie Bedelia. Uh, This came out in 1988, by the way. 
Yeah, there's some very 80 sensibilities in here, particularly regarding the relationship of the husband and wife. So it's Christmas Eve. Most of the building is unoccupied. A number of the floors are still under construction. Holly and John argue over her move to L.A., which split the family up. Kids are with her. And and the kids are at home being taken care of by a Latina housekeeper. They also argue about her going by her maiden name, Gennaro. So they argue, they go off in different directions. While John is off in another part of the building, the party is taken over by German terrorists led by Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman in his first film role. John that was his first film role? His very first was role it really? in the movie. He was wow. 42. Yeah, he was a theater actor oh. before that, and that's it. Uh-huh. So the audience had no idea who he was coming in, and that did set up a career of mostly playing villains. So John is in hiding when everybody else gets taken hostage. He sneaks around. He sees the terrorists execute one of the executives when he doesn't give them the security code. And using guerrilla tactics, given that he's only one man, he fights the terrorists, killing a number of them one at a time. And eventually the police arrive, as well as the FBI, which Hans Gruber had expected. The plan, as it's eventually re- revealed, isn't any kind of political cause. It's a robbery. $640 million in bearer bonds that the corporation has in their safe. And the terrorists plan to explode the building's upper floors and make it seem like they had all died in an operation gone wrong, ensuring that they would never be pursued. John McClane foils all of this in a variety of action-packed ways, and the movie climaxes with Hans Gruber hanging off the side of the building, holding onto Holly's Rolex, which she was given as a bonus for being such a smart businesswoman. McClane undoes the clasp on the watch. Gruber falls to his death. And the previously at each other's throats couple fall into each other's arms. Holly proudly takes back her married name when she's introduced to a police officer who's been helping John at a distance this whole movie. So as I mentioned, the movie came out in 1988. It was an immediate hit. It spawned a number of sequels, none of them approaching the the original's quality or popularity. Made Bruce Willis a major star, particularly of action movies. It spawned a number of imitation movies. And a handful of years ago, it started being celebrated as a Christmas movie, even though, in my opinion, the setting of Christmas is nominal. This movie could easily take place at a different type of year without changing much at all. And it is not a movie about someone discovering the spirit of Christmas, although it does end <laughs> with the reunion of a family. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, so um, I agreed. So I, you know, I, just to kind of give my wife a hard time, I will always refer to Die Hard as a Christmas movie because I know it bothers her. But, um, uh, but uh, yeah, come on, I, I agree with you, TJ, that uh, it just is a movie, much like, say, Lethal Weapon, that just happens to take place at uh, Christmas time, but is um, uh, it's not really part of the the script in a particular way. A couple of big things. You're absolutely right. This was huge. This was a hugely influential uh, movie for a number of reasons. It spawned many, many imitators. It spawned, you know, things like Speed, which is basically Die Hard on a bus. It spawned um, that Wesley Snipes movie, Passenger 57, which is Die Hard on a plane. Yeah, you know, and uh, so movie producers for a while there were looking for what other sort of thing can we put somebody out. So there was uh, the Steven Seagal movie under siege basically die hard on a uh, naval ship right uh, you know kind of thing so we we see this theme over and over again another thing that it really perfected was the everyman hero up until that point most heroes were sort of a john wayne sort of in charge character but this is a guy who's you know, one of the reasons it was so successful is because everybody could relate to john 
claim, right? Everybody could see themselves in these situations where I don't know what's going to happen here. I'm scared to death, but I'm going to figure out a way to to survive here. Again, this made Bruce Willis, but he was already pretty, you know, getting pretty big through the TV show Moonlighting was uh, with Sybil Shepherd. He was a pretty big star, went on to be a huge, huge star after this movie. And another thing it did really, really well was the great, great actor playing a villain. Okay. Now, that had been done before. Uh, I think of Lawrence Olivier in Marathon Man, for example. You know, I mean, we could argue that he was a pretty good actor and uh, played a villain. Um, but Alan Rickman was just fantastic in this, right? And, um, you know, really, really, really set a standard for bad guys. Even if we look at some of the other diehard on a blank, you know, characters, I don't think any of them really compared. Even the great Dennis Hopper in Speed. You know, I mean, he's Dennis Hopper and he was, you know, great, but not as chilling or scary, I think, as Alan Rickman was in this movie. So tell us about Enneagram types. TJ Ingrassi, I'm going to throw it to you again. Oh, so uh, you're doing, you're, yeah, look, you're, 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 you're throwing doing, me to the wolves here. <laughs> no, not at all. You're doing, you're doing fantastic. But uh, so I'm hoping I catch you in something I disagree with. So okay. No, I'm kidding. All right. Well, <laughs> okay. I'll go. There's one I'm confident in and one I'm not confident in. So I'll, gotcha. I'll let's just, we'll start with John McClain and I'll give, that's yeah. the one I'm not confident in, but I'll throw out my, uh, my guess, and we'll go from there. So I saw a lot of six-ish qualities in John McClane. Mostly his, I guess the idea of, what would you call it, threat awareness. There's this constant theme through the movie of him noticing his surroundings, being aware of threats. He walks into a room, he notices the security cameras, he sees what's going on around him. He also has a very... There's this recurring theme of him. He he says to himself, "Think, damn it, think." He's he's always coming up with new ideas. Sort of, you know, he, he sees the Santa hat and he decides to put it on the bad guy and roll him down the, you know, if it if it wasn't set at Christmas, you said it could be set at any time. If it wasn't set at Christmas time, he couldn't have written "ho ho ho" on the yeah, bad, right. bad bad guy's shirt. So, <laughs> if for no right. other reason, that should solidify it. Yes. Yeah. He uh, yeah he's sort of testing his environment, the cat and mouse thing with the with the bad guys. Um, but I'm not, I'm not convinced that was sort of what initially struck me, but I'm, I'm more than willing to be convinced otherwise. Yeah. That's pretty good. I, I, I like that. Um, uh, you said there was another one you were more confident in, uh, another assessment. I would uh, say Holly, his wife is a, is a no questions three in, in my book. And, and I would also say, if we're looking at minor characters, the epitome of the sleazy kind of transmitting three was her coworker. What was his name? Um, uh, it starts with an E, I think. Yeah. Was it Elliot or uh, Ellis. Uh, Ellis, Harry Ellis? Ellis yes. Yeah. Played by Hart Bachner, you know, really. So I thought they were kind of the, two, I don't want to say two versions of three, but one, a really kind of stereotypical, mm -hmm. you know, um, negative portrayal with yeah. three and her a very positive one. Right. Yeah. I mean, she was ambitious and driven, but, you know, uh, in, in, in a good way, mm -hmm. I felt, right? So, and at, at the beginning, in the initial scene when John and Holly are starting to argue in her office, John says to her, you know, Ellis has his eye on you. And she says, that's okay. I've got my eye on his corner bathroom. Private bathroom. Private yeah, bathroom, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, that, that, that stood out to me as well. Uh, T.J. Daw. Yeah, just a note about that, uh, about Holly being a, a big old three. A film professor of mine described how there is a motif in this movie of backlash against feminism, against women entering the workplace. 
This adventure would not have happened if she hadn't been such an ambitious and successful <laughs> career woman. You know, it's it's a point. It's it's presented as a betrayal that she's using her maiden name, and he pointedly yes. says that she's going by Ms. Gennaro. Like that's a dig at him. And then, of course, at the end, she proudly takes back the name McLean, and they're reunited. Although there is no implication that she's going to give up her job. You know, there's no sense of what the future is for that company or. But there is the implication that we're we're married again, and she's remembered that she's John McClane's wife, and that that's a good thing. That's really a good observation. And let's see, this movie was made in, oh yeah, release date, July 1988. So if you think back to that time, we had come through the late 60s and the 70s, which was the era of feminism, and we were at the tail end of the Reagan remuscularization of american society i'll call it right uh, rambo chuck norris you know all those sort of movies that were coming back and now we're going to go out and put women back in their place and go kill some commies while we're at it so um yeah yeah very good call very interesting and and then maybe not coincidental then and i hadn't put these two together but director john mctiernan also directed predator the hunt for red october <laughs> last action hero so there's not a lot of uh you know uh positive female characters in those films as far as i'm aware <laughs> right right good um uh tj Dahl, what else about die hard hans gruber not a particularly fleshed out character but possibly a three i was thinking he's slick he's well dressed he's well groomed we even find out you know the name of the tailor that he got his suits from he has this elaborate plan which hinges on deception he knows his stuff he's done his homework he's very cold the only principle he cares about is his own success, although he doesn't mind the benefit of notoriety, which is something that can happen with threes as they go down the levels. I want to be known, even if it's for the wrong reasons. And he references Alexander the Great. He wept as there were no more worlds to conquer. And I need to study him more to say this with confidence. Wouldn't be surprised if Alexander the Great was a big old three. Hmm. And then he really reacts when Holly refers to him as a common thief. He gets his back up and says, I'm an exceptional thief. And he's very good at doing the American accent to disagree yes. John McClane. Yeah, good. Interesting. Um, I saw him as more of a one-ish sort of character, you know, with that precision and that, you know, uh, you know. I, I think it's easy to overlook a one as a bad guy, right, or as a bank robber or something, because we all think that they're going to be Gandhi or something. But I think the argument could be made either way, uh, TJ. My initial reaction was this sort of stiff, calculating, proper kind of one-ish, right? Probably the transmitting version, uh, if I had to put a subtype on it. But uh, but I, I agree with you, not particularly fleshed out. TJ and Grassi, I don't know, do you have a thought on? Yeah, I was, between those two, I'd probably lean more towards the one. There's the scene when uh, him and Takagi are talking about the model of the Indonesian bridge. And Hans says that as a boy, he loved making models because of the exactness, the attention to every detail. Um, honestly, I was I was going back and forth between one and five. You know, there's mm. Uh, mm. A, a bit of a detachment to him. That attention to detail, the the planning, everything is set out. But I agree with what you said that he's his character is not that fleshed out. You know, it's, right. I, I think you could make a case for any of these. And you know, if I was doing, if I was going to use clips from this film in my typecast series, I could probably use. You know, in any of those videos, pull the clips and, and it would right. make sense. Right, right. 
Right. A couple of the other characters worth mentioning, uh, Reginald Vell Johnson as uh, Sergeant Powell, really good. Uh, it felt kind of nine-ish to me, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, uh, so Paul Gleason, who plays one of the FBI special agent Johnsons, uh, which I just thought was a wonderful touch, right? I mean, just so, so just for somebody who hasn't seen the movie in a while, these two FBI agents show up, one black, one white, and they're both named Agent Johnson. Okay, and uh, there's a great scene where one of them's on the phone or the radio or something, and he says, "Yeah, this is Johnson." He goes, "No, not that one." You know, it's just such a a random throwaway sort of line that was just so funny for me. But Paul Gleason from listeners who uh, listened to the uh, Breakfast Club episode uh, played the principal in the Breakfast Club and was uh, also in one of my other favorite movies, which is another oh, i'm feeling next year's lineup already filling up trading places he plays <laughs> uh, mr beaks in trading places so i always enjoy seeing paul gleason show up in almost anything i think so, he played robinson who is the police supervisor i'm thinking the same guy and yeah if you're talking oh, about the you're principal right, you're right yeah. you're right you're right and his I'm role sorry. was to disdain oh, what powell right, had you're said right, you're right. to yeah, disdain like it's it's a beautiful cliche of genre yes. movies, yes. which is <laughs> yes. the police officer who doesn't yeah. believe that what we know the audience know to be true is true and thus perpetuates the problem. Thank you for correcting me there, because I was too, I was conflating two character actors there, right? And the other one who played the white agent Johnson, I'm now drawing a blank on his name, but he played Robert the bad guy. Gobby. Robert Davi, that's right. So um, it, it's funny because I had a client many, many years ago who was looked exactly like Robert Davi. And people <laughs> always used to say, hey, you're that guy in the movies, right? And so I used to, every time I'd see him, I'd say, hey, it's noted character actor Robert Davi. <laughs> so I'm really embarrassed that I drew a blank on Robert Davi's name. But yes, it was great to see him. Yes, I was talking about Paul Gleason and how much I enjoy him, but I was conflating the characters. So thank you for that clarification. Let's see. As far as McLean is concerned, interesting, TJ, about the sixth theme. Bruce Willis has I have always struggled with because, uh, again, I remember Moonlighting when it was on TV back in the 80s, and that character was a whole lot of seven. Right, going on. Okay. And in Bruce Willis, there's a whole lot of seven stuff, but he sort of took a turn career wise, probably around the time of Pulp Fiction, where that character's a whole lot of eight going on. Right. So, and um, in many of his roles since then, it's kind of an eight ish character. And I think we've seen this progression of John McClane over the four movies going from somebody who's more six ish, seven ish to more of somebody who's more eight ish. Okay. Bruce Willis in real life is an interesting character too, because every time I read other actors talking about him, they talk about how intimidating and scary he is, which again would make me lean toward eight. But early Bruce Willis seemed pretty darn seven-ish, or at least somebody who was exploring that side of him. So for me, it's a mystery. I, I don't know. Thoughts from you guys on Bruce Willis or the character? I could buy the possible interpretation of him as a seven. Again, you know, more so than Hans Gruber, but it's not a really fleshed out portrait. Yeah. Aristotle would like this movie because it has unity of plot and of time and almost of place. Almost the entire movie takes place in this one building. So yes. the span of time is, it's almost real time. 
So yes. we don't get to know this guy that much. One of the noted things about him, which was supposedly written in and somewhat improvised, is a lot of wisecracks, a lot of teasing and taunting the, the terrorists with jokes, or sometimes just cracking jokes to himself, mm-hmm. which sevens don't have a monopoly on that. But right. it's, it, there is a very seven-ish element to that. Yeah, yeah. And, and Bruce Willis isn't an actor who I'm re- at least familiar with in terms of, you, it's not like, you know, he's always being interviewed or he's always making public appearances. Virtually the only thing I know about him is his performances in movies and TV shows. So right. that makes it that much harder to know what the man is actually like in the flesh. Right, right. Yeah, he's one of those guys that, uh, you know, back in the 80s into the early 90s was all over the media. I mean, I don't know how well you guys remember him from back in that time, but he was, I mean, he was all over the news. He even had that singing career as Bruno, kind of an alter, you know, an alter ego would go out and play harmonica and, you know, lead a band and uh, all that sort of stuff. So he's clearly somebody who lived big and boldly in the 80s and then sort of, I think after marrying Demi Moore and divorcing Demi Moore kind of became a little bit tabloid shy. So yeah, so Die Hard, um, again, not clearly defined, uh, some interesting themes in there. The wisecracking thing, again, a very 80s-ish, you know, uh, early 90s sort of uh, motif in movies. You know, I think of Arnold Schwarzenegger's, uh, you you know, uh, one-liners and, you know, so many other characters. Anything else about Die Hard from an Enneagram perspective? One more thing to mention, and this just struck me as a sevenish thing, is a phrase that came to me as I was watching it, is that the movie is a buffet of awesome. <laughs> There's just so many things in there that are there to knock your socks off. Like the, It's very black and white. The good guys versus bad guys, there's no shades of gray. The villains mm-hmm. are remorseless psychopaths. They kill people. Yes. They're not troubled by it in the slightest. Ellis, who we talked about, is such a good, coked-up, sleazy 80s guy. He calls hands Bubby at one point. <laughs> you know, the, the thieves fire a bazooka at an armored vehicle and hit it twice. Mm-hmm. Or the C4 explosive attached to a chair thrown down the elevator shaft and the fireball going right back up and McLean having to leap out of the blast zone. The, the multiple climaxes, you know, there's McLean fighting Carl. There's jumping off the roof as it explodes. There's the metal ring holding the hose to his waist, falling off the building and almost pulling him out in the middle of the floor that he's managed to smash his way into. There's confronting Hans. There's the twist of the gun taped to his back. There's the watch. There's Carl coming back at the last minute. And there's even Argyle, the limo driver, punching the hacker guy in the face. And then there's Holly punching the sleazy reporter in the face. There's the Barabons falling from the sky. It's like, whoa, it's just this banquet of entertainment kind of overwhelming you of like, Let's make you happy, audience. Let's give you everything you could want in a summer movie and more. Yeah, excellent point, TJ. I mean, it is a movie that I think lived up to, lives still up to its reputation for just a wonderful action, I'll say action comedy almost, right? Uh, You know, or at least a humorous action Mm -hmm. movie. Excellent performances, even if the characters are not, you know, complex. 
Okay, but still, you know, really good acting that that holds it together. Even the Hart uh, Bachner, you know, Ellis character. Uh, I mean, it's you don't like this guy, and it is a stereotype, but he does it so darn well, right? And he, <laughs> you know, and that that actor has done that character in so many movies. The reporter who we didn't talk about, the reporter played by um, I put my notes somewhere else. William here. Atherton. Yes. You know, again, was in so many movies at that time, uh, as was the female reporter, uh, later shows up in Lethal Weapon and, you know, the Lethal Weapon movies. Um, you know, he's great in it, plays somebody you love to hate. Felt kind of a six-ish character to me, kind of three-ish, six-ish, you know, somewhere in that range, not to, you know, disparage those types, but, um, you know, uh, so really, really entertaining, entertaining and enjoyable thrill ride of a movie. Uh, TJ and Gracia, was there, I'm sorry, were you going to say something? That? No, n- nothing Enneagram related. The one thing that I did know at the beginning, there's the scene where Argyle is driving John to the tower in the limo. Argyle puts on some music and it's a Christmas rap song. John kind of rolls his eyes and says, don't you have any Christmas music? And Argyle says, this is Christmas music. And then, the you know, the we see the montage, the car goes the thing, the music plays up. So I thought that was a, a, a prescient bit of foreshadowing of the, you know, is Die Hard a Christmas movie or not? Some people think it is, some people think it isn't. <laughs> yeah. Is this a Christmas movie? Is this Christmas music? You yeah, know, it's, it's, it's a- baked right in. <laughs> and, and one thing I did notice, actually, though, is that throughout, I don't know who did the score for the film, but I... I guess I was just noticing it because I was had this idea of, is it a Christmas movie or not? A lot of the score was sort of riffs and motifs on Christmas songs, you know, taking a Christmas song and toning it down and making it dark for scenes with the terrorists. And yes. I, I noticed that sprinkled throughout. So certainly, yes. you know, even if it's not, um, you know, Christmas based, they certainly in the production were playing up that Christmas aspect of it. Yes, I think it's Handel's Messiah that plays when they open the safe, right? Yes. I, I think. Um, <laughs> Ode to Joy. Ode to Joy. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Ode to Joy. Ode to Joy, which was uh, Beethoven. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah, um, it was Beethoven before it was ever used in a Christmas song, and that's a motif throughout. And then it plays in yes. full in the credits after Let yes. It Snow. Ode to Joy? That's kind of seven-ish. Not kind that I think seven-ish. Beethoven <laughs> right. was a seven. Probably more an eight, but still. And again, gets back to our, you know, theme of even if there's not a hugely, you know, clearly defined seven-ish character in this movie. I mean, even your description of it, TJ, as this banquet of awesome or whatever wonderful phrase you use there, seven-ish, right? I mean, just let me have fun and entertainment. Don't make me think too hard. Don't make me think, you know, oh, he would never survive this or, you know, he'd, he'd be dead there or, you know, there's no way this could happen or that could happen. No, just shut up and have fun, right, is is what you want to do when you're watching Die Hard. So uh, that's <laughs> that's that's how an eight tries to be a seven. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> All right, great. One more seven thing that jumped out at me, just finding out some of the behind the scenes stuff, is when they started filming, they had about 35 pages of script. They were flying by the seat of their pants making this big budget movie, and they only got a complete script when the movie was half done. And as I mentioned before, there was a fair bit of improvising on the set, particularly from Bruce Willis, finding jokes that his character would say, finding lines that his character would say. So there's that kind of seven-ish thing. Sevens are great improvisers. They're good at shucking and jiving and making something out of nothing. And sometimes they can pull it off. And then this was based on a novel 
the movie, of course, is far more popular than the novel. It was based on a number of things was changed, one of which is that the thieves were changed to thieves. In the novel, they really are terrorists. Uh, and John McTiernan decided, no, no, let's make them thieves, because then we don't have to get into political stuff, which is going to distract you from having fun. It's going to have this dark undertone, this seriousness, and it's going to be really mean. He used that word in an interview. He says, so many action movies are just mean, because he wanted to keep the audience entertained. And then he had this really interesting take on it. He said he modeled the script on, of all things, A Midsummer Night's Dream. He said, this is something that happens on a festival night that turns the world upside down. And all the princes become asses and all the asses become princes. And in the morning, the true lovers are reunited and everyone goes on, but the world is better than it was the night before. Boy, I'll tell you, there's a whole lot that goes on behind the scenes of these movies that we really don't understand. So, But that's what makes them so much fun and so interesting. So this just draws to a close. Uh, the turkey is not only cooked, but eaten. And uh, it's time again <laughs> to switch into those uh, elastic pants and uh, saddle up for uh, Christmas time. So guys, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. And already thinking about Christmas movies for next year that we'll talk about. Trading Places has to go on the list. And uh, and for producer Seth, we'll do a White Christmas as well. We'll make sure we get that one on the list. That was a request that we uh, couldn't quite get to. So uh, TJ and Grassi, again, thank you for being with us. Tell our listener again uh, where they can find out more about you. Uh, sure. So if you search uh, Typecast Enneagram on YouTube, you can find my Typecast channel. My podcast is called Agnostish. Just go Google search for that. You'll find it. Uh, I have another series on YouTube called Object Lesson. You can search for that. So yeah, there you go. TJ, we're looking forward to having you back. And uh, so when people are going to be listening to this, it's early in season two, although we are filming this late in our recording cycle. So um, even though you won't hear TJ again this season, I'm pretty sure you're going to be hearing from him again in the future. Both TJ. So I want to thank uh, TJ Daw, uh, as always, for this compelling conversation. And TJ, where can people find out more about you, TJ Daw? I've got stuff at www.tjdaw.ca. It's a Canadian web domain. So .com will take you somewhere else. .ca is all my stuff. Great. That's where they can find out a boot, TJ Daw. Um, so, <laughs> eh? <laughs> all right. So um, this draws us to a close. Uh, thank you again to the producer, Seth Creekmore, for his work on these. And we'll see you at the movies. The Enneagram in a Movie podcast, which is produced and edited by Seth Creekmore and is part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Don't forget to go online and support the podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time.